Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey Ben, it's Aaron. Hey Aaron, it's Ben. So Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A Lifetime. Well, that sounds like a great name for a podcast. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We're going to discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, we're fresh off another race weekend uh, in the, the thick of things now in the summer. Not the dog days of summer, but it is warming up. Um, but yeah, I wanted to start off this podcast, you know, we, we've talked a, a little bit about some of the young guys taking over NASCAR um, last episode, we talked about Kyle Larson because he wins all the time right now. Um, but there's somebody that I wanted to start off this podcast with who's, uh, you know, when you think about the young, the younger drivers, younger generation kind of taking over in the Cup Series to an extent, you've got Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, um, you know, a bunch of the young 20-somethings that have taken over. I think, Ben, when a lot of people discuss, like, youth taking over from experience in NASCAR, the first thing they always think of first is, oh, well, Jeff Gordon was the first one who, like, you know, kind of paved that trail. Well, in a way, yeah, but in a way he didn't, you know, because, I mean, certainly he had the success. But the guy that I want to talk about to start off episode 20 drove the number 20 car in the Cup Series, albeit for a short time, and that's the late Rob Moroso. So if you guys don't know, Rob Moroso uh, was a Cup Series driver. He won Rookie of the Year in 1990. Uh, he's the only driver to be posthumously awarded Rookie of the Year, and we'll get into in a, in a moment. We'll get into why. But Rob Moroso was from Connecticut. His dad, Dick Moroso, uh, owned his race team. Was uh, a really popular guy in the NASCAR garage. Um, my buddy Lenny was friends with Dick, and a lot of people were. He's the namesake of uh, what was Moroso Motorsports Park, this road course in Florida, and his son Rob. Uh, came up through the ranks in the Dash Series in NASCAR and had a whole lot of success in the Bush Series, what was the Bush Series at the time, before going cup racing in 1990. And Ben, you covered the sport then. Uh, Moroso got into cup. He was like 20, 21 years old. I mean, this is this was a time when 36 made you one of the young guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure did. And, you know, I tell you what, Rob was a guy who was – a very up and coming race car driver and in, in 89, 88, 89, 90 in that era and very, very good race car driver. Somebody that everybody touted as the next great superstar in the cup series. Uh, he drove car number 20, uh, had Moroso uh, parts on the back of his car. And, and Moroso is, is a name that uh, is still, I think out there some as far as parts on race cars and, yep. Just, just a, a name that you very quickly associate with engine parts. And I'm telling you what, this kid was so, so good behind the wheel of of race cars back in that era. I remember he drove Rosemobiles and, uh, you know, just I'm telling you, I, I've said it and said it, but he just very, very good behind the wheel. And, you know, I remember one time I was writing an article for Winston Cup Illustrated, which uh, later became NASCAR Illustrated, but I couldn't help use this, and I, I'm still proud of the way it came out. But I remember the opening line of this thing said, "He should have been serving fries and burger out the out the drive-through window, as opposed to serving notice that he was going to be the next uh, winner and next Bush Series champion." 
And that's what he struck me as. Somebody, he looked so young. He looked like he could have been saying, hey, do you want fries with that? Do you yeah, want a milkshake with I that? Mean, he was young, but he even looked young for his age. Like so, He did. Moroso was really, 21, yeah, when he was a rookie. But he, I mean, he, you could have thought he was like 16 or 17. He just yeah. had that youthful exuberance about him in terms of personality. But he also, um, he was pretty media savvy, wasn't he, Ben? I mean, I've seen a lot of interviews with Moroso, and, and he seemed to uh, to be wise beyond his years in terms of, uh, of dealing with the media and of conducting interviews. Yeah, he was that way. And he, he I, I think he knew he had some talent. He wasn't, to me, one of those types of guys that said, hey, look how great I am, and look how much money I have behind me, and all that type of thing. I, he really didn't strike me that way. Some people may have thought he was, but... Each time I sat down with him, and honestly, I probably sat down with him and talked with him maybe twice or three times. Mm-hmm. But I think he was—he—he he knew he had some talent. He knew he had the money, but he really, to me, didn't really go to his head that much. But he just had that youthful exuberance about him. But he did strike me that way when I first sat down with him for the first time. He had—I remember—I'll never forget this. He had on this—this—I this, uh, guess I can say this—this this crown. Um, uh, oil or crown gasoline type uh, jacket on petroleum, yeah, petroleum, right? But he had on these bloomer type, really loud sort of pants on, and I guess that was the thing to do back probably, in that era. Probably Zubas or something like that. Something like that, yeah. And he was just like milling around the garage, and I caught him at the back of their transporter. I said, "Hey, man," I said, "Look, I'm doing a little piece for for Winston Cup Illustrated magazine. Can I talk to you?" He said, "Yeah, sure." And we sat down on the back of the truck on that little area, lip area where the steps were and we just sat and talked and he he struck me as like like i said like a guy who would you know get to work at a at a fast food place and he would put on the apron and the hat and say okay you know who's next in line and you know let me get you the burger and the fries and the drink and that next up he just struck me as that way but oh by the way this is a guy who uh is going to strap into a a 3,700 pound race car and go out and win the pole at Charlotte. And he was very, very good at, at places like Charlotte, the one mile, one and a half mile racetracks. Yep. And he just won and won and won. And sadly, his career was cut short by an on track auto accident after the fall race at North Wilkesboro. On a highway, uh, I mean. Yeah. On a highway, yeah. right. And uh, in 1990, I believe October of 1990, and it was, I just remember the sadness. The the next that Monday morning when the word got out that uh, he had passed away in a car accident, just very sad that we lost Rob at, at such a young age. So uh, so to go to to back up a little bit. So Rob Moroso won the Bush Series Championship, the Xfinity Series Championship in 1989, driving uh, for his dad's team. He was sponsored by Swisher Sweets, which is this kind of, uh, it's like miniature cigarettes, I guess. Um, I'm not really, yeah, I'm not really a smoker, so uh, I don't know exactly, but um, cigars. Okay. So, um, but one thing that was interesting about Moroso was, uh, he couldn't have, uh, I think he couldn't have Bush on his car when he won a championship because he wasn't 21. Um, but he, he was a supreme talent. He came up through what was known as the Daytona dash series. Then a a series that has long since ceased to exist. Um, but he was a very affable guy, um, a a true professional. His dad, Dick Morosa raised him very well as a race car driver. Um, so that he had all the success 89. I think he swept the races at Charlotte. Charlotte motor speedway is a very special place to Rob Moroso. It was his adopted home track, even though he was from Connecticut, uh, he moved to the Lake Norman area, uh, where I've lived for a long time, and uh, he he you know set up shop there, lived there. Um, certainly, Ben, you could say that Robbie Moroso had a privileged life, but um, yeah, I, I do have to point out an interesting bit of trivia. Do you know who was the car owner for Rob Moroso when he made his Cup debut, and what track was it? I have to say that I don't know right off the top of my head. I'm sure you did. I stumped you. Yeah. You did, so, you did um, stump me. Yeah. That's an accomplishment. Uh, I don't know. Uh, right so well. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 1988, I think, 87 or 88. He was a teenager. He was literally the age of a high school junior. And he drove the number 47 peak antifreeze Chevrolet for none other than Rick Hendrick. That was when he that? made his debut. He drove on those old Monte Carlos that are my favorite chassis in the history of motorsports. And did fairly well, especially for somebody who, as you said, Ben, you know, 
uh, looked and gave off the vibe that he could be serving burgers and fries. Um, instead, he was, you know, hauling these race cars around. And when they were coming to run in the, the bush races, because you guys got to remember, at that time, the bush races at Charlotte in the late 80s attracted like half of the cup field. It, was, it wasn't just like a couple bushwhackers. It was a bunch of them. You had Earnhardt, Harry Gant, Darrell Waltrip, all these heavy hitters coming down to try to win these bush races at Charlotte because they were a big deal, and they paid quite a bit of money. Um, and Rob Moroso kicked all their asses every time. I mean, he absolutely had Charlotte figured out. And this was at a time, Ben, where um, you could hit a setup at a racetrack, and because the rules packages didn't change a ton year to year, if you were good in 88, you'd probably be good in 89. You'd probably be good in 90. Uh, if anybody questions that, I'd like to refer you to uh, Kyle Petty at Rockingham in the early 90s, and that's your proof. But um, Robbie Rosso was a fantastic race car driver, um, super talented. So he wins the championship in 89. He moves up to Cup in 1990. The driver of this gorgeous blue and white number 20 Oldsmobile sponsored by Crown Petroleum, Fast Fair, and Moroso Parts, and his dad owns a team. Uh, had a rough start for most of the year. Qualified really well for the 600, as you'd expect, because it was at Charlotte. Almost been. He almost won the Winston Open in 1990. Uh, he lost out by about two feet to the late Dick Trickle. At the finish line, that was he just missed getting the last spot in the Winston. Qualified top 10 for the 600. Uh, got his first top 10 of 1990 and the uh, Pepsi 400 that year. And, you know, was certainly running away with uh, with Rookie of the Year honors. People looked at this guy. And this was a time, remember, when expectations were different for rookies. You weren't expected to make a big splash in a cup series until your fourth or fifth year, particularly when you were as young as him. He was half the age of, of most of the guys he was racing against. And, and this was at a time when this was unheard of. I mean, you think Joey Logano, it was weird Joey Logano being 18 around the Daytona 500. At least at that time, you had a lot of guys in the field in their 20s. In 1990, that was almost unheard of. If you were 30 or 31 years old, you know, you're too young for Winston Cup. And mm-hmm. this guy was even younger than that. So um, before we get further in the, in the Moroso thing, um, I do have to mention that the ultimate teenager that, that preceded him was Bobby Hillen Jr., who I think made his Cup debut when he was 16 or 17 and won a race before, his, before he was 23. Unfortunately, it was his only win in 80, uh, 86 at Talladega. But so Rob Moroso comes in. He, he, he's not setting the world on fire, and was, but nobody expected him to. They expected him to have several years of kind of growing. And, um, you know, w- would he be something in the future? Yeah, probably. So, Ben, do you know N.B. Arnold? Do you remember him at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know N.B., great friend of mine. Yeah, yes. N.B.'s a buddy of mine, too. Um, N.B. was the PR guy for Robbie Moroso when he drove in the Bush Series in 1989. So, um, and so I've talked to N.B., uh, through the years he also uh, has has written pit notes for charlotte motor speedway races which is how i got to know him well nb um told me a story one time i i, I like to know what rob moroso was like to let you guys know how much i like rob moroso um i think i've mentioned on this podcast before i had a pair of rob moroso sunglasses when i was really little and damn ben i want to find those things so bad i mean like mm. i would trade most any pair of sunglasses i got if i could find my rob moroso sunglasses because those things are straight fire and as a matter of fact, I have a Rob Moroso. I'm probably the only person that I know of who carries a Rob Moroso keychain around on his key ring all the time. I have a number 20 crown Rob Moroso keychain that I carry. I also have a Rob Moroso hat, too. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so he, he, NB told me one time about Rob Moroso that he uh, said he was a great kid, as we've enumerated in this podcast, but he had a short temper, as you'd expect for somebody who's also a teenager. Um and he ran a race at Darlington one time and uh, didn't run as well as he expected. And to not run as well as he expected meant he didn't win. And they got back in. You know, he pulled in the garage area, and NB was going to get you know get a quote from him for the press release, and uh, which they even did then. And uh, Moroso wasn't having any of it. He got in his uh, he got in the trailer, and he was throwing stuff around, just absolutely mad as as can be. Um, and somebody asked him if they could talk to Rob, and NB just kind of stood outside the trailer and was like, uh, why don't you give him about 15 minutes and let mm-hmm. him cool down? Yeah. And he cooled off, and he got in his car, and he hightailed it back to Lake Norman and didn't say a word. Dude did not like losing races. Um, but he was he was a you know a, an excellent driver with a, a lot of potential for the future. And what was interesting, Ben, that I learned from, from him, from NB, 
was that people thought Rob Morosa was going to be this future cup champion who had a long career. And uh, you never know. You, if you're not inside the person's head, you never really know what they're thinking. But NB was really convinced that Robbie Moroso was going to run about 10 years in Winston Cup and retire and go do something else. He said he really enjoyed racing. He loved the competition. But he never got the vibe that Rob Moroso was going to do that for a long period of time. So it would have been really interesting to see what he would have done. Um, but unfortunately, we never got to find out because he had kind of a subpar run at uh, North Wilkesboro in September 1990. And they, you know, then, you know, just like you and me or anybody else, you know, guys like race North Wilkesboro because it's close to Charlotte area, so they, they could spend a night home and drive and come back. So he comes back and um, goes out drinking for the night. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get into too much of the details here. You guys can look it up, but... Um, some questionable decisions were made and Rob Moroso lost his life. And so did another person on the highway too, which is a completely regrettable decision. It had mm-hmm. a ripple effect through NASCAR. It was a PR black eye for the sport. Unlike few that have come, you know, have come through before or since, um, because you know, the sports based on driving, right. And you had somebody mm-hmm. drive intoxicated and, and kill himself. Um, certainly it was not good PR for NASCAR and it was a terrible day. Like you said, Ben, for the sport because we were robbed of, of seeing a talent just as he was beginning to turn the corner and really start to figure out those cup cars. Um, but yeah, Rob Moroso was a, was a cool guy. Um, he, uh, it's been more than 30 years since we lost him now, which is crazy to think about. This guy would be in his early fifties now and would have been mm-hmm. long since retired. Um, but it would have been very interesting. He is one of the guys uh, that I don't think gets talked about enough from the standpoint of what could have been. And I think about, you know, what he could have been. He's not spoken of a lot of the young guys. Like we started out this podcast, like Jeff Gordon, who, you know, kind of burst in the scene before young guys did that. He was uh, just before Jeff Gordon, and it would have been really fun to see him race against Gordon. And, and honestly, I think Moroso would have ended up at Hendrick. Um, you know, part of this podcast, we're supposed to talk about what ifs and heck we're going to play the what if game here ben i think rob moroso would have stayed with his dad's team for a few years and then i think he would have probably split and um when kenny schrader maybe left hendrick or somewhere around there um or maybe they just started another team i think or when honestly probably a better bet was when ricky rudd left i wonder if they would have hired terry labani or they would have hired rob moroso once he'd had four or five years of experience what do you think Mm -hmm. well it's so hard to tell i mean it's fun in a way to 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 move those chessboard pieces around and see what ifs and it's fun to fantasize about who would have gone where it's very possible because you know it's a lot of times in these family situations, it either works or it doesn't, and sure. you can sort of tell how that's going to go pretty quickly. It did work for many, many years in the sense that, of course, with Petty Enterprises, yeah, with Richard Petty, Lee Petty, Maurice Petty, and they made a real success of it. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, you love one another and you respect one another, but family is, is hard to work with sometimes, not only in racing, but it can be that way in, in any family business. It's just so difficult to make it click. Dale so, Jr., Bill Elliott, and um, yeah. Kyle Petty come to mind. Yeah, it's so hard to, to make those things work. And, and you know, take, take, for instance, the Richard Petty, Kyle Petty thing. I mean, let's be honest with each other. Richard Petty has 200 victories. It was so difficult, it almost impossible for Kyle Petty to follow in the footsteps of Richard Petty. Be honest with with each other here. I mean, Kyle Petty, could he actually have gone, think about the pressure of that, to to say, all right, my dad won 200 races, and by gosh, I'm gonna go out there and win 201 races. Yeah. I mean, come on. Nothing is reasonable. At no point was it acceptable. Kind of like Marco Andretti in IndyCar, if I may. I mean, it's, you know, doesn't matter what you do, they're, they're always going to say, well, you didn't do what he did. No, exactly. And that was so unfair to Kyle, no matter what he did. And Kyle, in his own way, which I respect Kyle immensely for doing this, he wanted to do his own thing. Well, it didn't matter what Richard did. Kyle wanted to do his own thing, and that's what he should have done. And that's what that's exactly what Kyle did. He played music. He had long hair. He ran around in tuxedos with no shoes. 
know, did? he did. Hold on, he, I can't bury yeah, the lead now. So you got to tell us a little <laughs> bit about that because I didn't know about that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he. I remember we did a photo shoot with him when with NASCAR Illustrated once, and he was. There's a great photo of him leaning backwards on his motorcycle with his feet propped up, and it was Person of the Year. And Kyle, of course, was the the Man of the Year for us. And he said, "I got to do this," and he took off his nice dress shoes and his socks, and he leans backward on the on the motorcycle, barefoot with the uh, with the tux on, and crosses his arms and big smile. So y'all didn't tell Kyle. him to do that. He just did it on his own. No, he just did it. Yeah, he just did it on That's his own. That's a showman, man. And, and see, that was Kyle, and that is Kyle, and I love him to death because he is just going to do his thing, and he still does his thing, you know. And and you cannot ask for a nicer guy who is just slightly different, but that's what we love about him. And he's, you know, but that's the thing about him. And he, there's no way on earth Kyle Petty could be like Richard Petty. Right. And they, they are father and son. They have immense respect for one another. They love each other immensely. But there was no way he could ever come into the Cup Series and say, you know what, pal, I'm going to win 215 or 220 races because they're, they're different eras. There's different different types of driver, different types of cars, different things. There's no way he was going to do that. But there were fans out there saying, hey, man, doesn't matter. You know, you just you weren't as good as your dad. Well, he wasn't supposed to be as good as his dad, right? He wasn't he wasn't going to win seven championships. He had to do his own thing. Same with Dale Earnhardt and Dale Earnhardt Jr. They are to- two totally different people and two different driving styles, two different eras. So when you're a junior, or it's, it's a it's a wonderful thing to be the son of a of a seven time champion, but it's also the worst curse in the world yeah. to be, you know, to yeah. be that person, because you're not going to be the same. You're not going to accomplish the same things, and you shouldn't be held to that standard. You should be able to do your own thing. So, yeah, and that that's just the way it is with these guys who have to follow in the footsteps. Same thing with Bobby Allison and Davey Allison. They're just two different individuals and same thing with uh your grandson rex white and his yeah. uh his pseudo uncle rex white he's gonna have that exactly. <laughs> he's got the pressure of, of building yeah. on the 1960 cup championship you know exactly already he's five five months old and he's already worried about it <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i mean you know, and that's a valid, it's a valid point you know these guys yeah. are under a lot of pressure um robin moroso's dad dick was involved in motorsports he, he didn't race in the cup series but he was heavily involved in it um you know, as, as, as the fathers of a lot of cup drivers are, um, sometimes by necessity, you know, um, but Moroso was a fantastic driver, but he was only one of a slew of people who did well in the number 20 car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, you know, being episode 20, um, we got to talk about people who drove the 20 car. I feel like there was somebody out there, Ben, who won a couple championships in a 20 car. I think he's like an Indy car driver or something before that. Um, hmm. what was his name? I can't remember. Um, thinking it starts with a T and maybe ends with an S. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony yeah. Anthony Stewart, that was his name. Yeah. Anthony maybe, W. Stewart. A maybe. Wayne A. Wayne Stewart Esquire. Yep, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? There's a guy before him, his name was Marvin Panch, who actually won in the number twenty in the nineteen sixty one. Uh, Daytona 500 for a guy named Smokey Eunuch, who I believe was the first time the 20 went to Victory Lane, and many years ago. I'm sure it passed Tech too. I'm sure Smokey Eunuch, who was a mm. big, big <laughs> proponent of following the rules. You guys can look every, it up. Nobody every, was more pro-establishment in NASCAR than Smokey Eunuch for sure. Every single time. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. Marvin Patch actually won the 1961 uh, Daytona 500 using the number 20, and then. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Tony Stewart, I think, had 33 victories with the number 20, followed by Matt Kenseth, I think, had 15. But, yeah, Tony Stewart leads the list with 33 wins in the number 20 and uh, had a lot of wins there and some championships using number 20 with Joe Gibbs. Yep, and uh, Joey Logano bagged the, the first two wins of his career in the 20 car. The first one came in 2009. Uh, I was actually considered going to that race, Ben. It was during my internship when I was in uh, Massachusetts in college and couldn't end up going because we had a baseball game. Um, but uh, Logano bagged his first win under pretty fortunate circumstances. Didn't run all that well, um, but caught, caught the rain when he needed to catch it. His crew chief, Greg Zipidelli told him to stay out. They stayed out. They bagged a win. 
Uh, his second victory, he actually, and this is what's weird, because like you expect Logano to win, you know, two to four races every year at least. That's just that's just what he does. Um, well, there was a time when he didn't. He got that one lucky win in 09. He went winless in 2010. Struggled bad in 2011. Um, and then nudged his buddy and his hero, Mark Martin, out of the way to win at Pocono in 2012. And that was about a month before it was announced that he was leaving Joe Gibbs Racing and leaving that, that gorgeous orange number 20 Home Depot car to, uh, to join Team Penske. And I don't think a lot of people... I, I was I was a little curious about that hiring, honestly, because uh, I like Logano. I've always liked Logano. He's like as I've said on this podcast many times. He's one of the coolest guys in NASCAR. He's got more haters than almost everybody, not named Kyle Busch, but he is actually a genuinely nice person. He is great to work with. He's a total professional. He's a fantastic race car driver. Um, but I don't think a lot of people thought that moving, you know, that he was a I don't know his Tim Penske caliber, right? And then. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Brad Keselowski kind of championed his cause to give this, you know, to give him a shot. And it didn't take long for him to outshine Keselowski. And it's not unlike in some ways, Ben, when Jeff Gordon uh, championed Rick Hendrick to hire this guy named Jimmy Johnson. And Jeff Gordon, you know how many championships Jeff Gordon won after Jimmy Johnson ran full time? That's a big zero. Um, so, you know. I'm not trying to frustrate the Gordon fans out there, but Jimmy kind of overshadowed Jeff Gordon after he got hired too. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with Logano. We didn't see that. When Joey was driving the 20 car, you thought it was a good a good driver, a good young driver, but you never knew what his potential could be because you know he had good runs in that car. I remember late 2010, he was racking up top fives and top tens a lot late in the year, but uh, it didn't translate in 2011 at all. And then in 2012, he was an afterthought in a lot of the races. So they came out of nowhere to win at Pocono. Um, but there were just, there were flashes of brilliance and that's all it was. But he is a great example of somebody who got another opportunity and really made the most of it and showed us what he was truly capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but even since Logano at 20 car and since Kenseth, the 20 cars had success um, with Eric Jones who I have raced against in a go-kart before, and he absolutely dusted me. Um, <laughs> of course, I will say because it was his tires were soaked and he had, you know, the seat scooted all the way up and, you know, Lord knows what else. But, uh, you know, he Jones bagged a couple wins in the number 20, most notably the Southern 500. And then um, my main man, Christopher Bell, C-Bell, got his first win earlier this year. Uh, driving the 20 car. So there's been a ton of success in that car number. Um, like you said, Ben, nobody more than Tony Stewart. Um, what's crazy, though, is that between Stewart, Kenseth, Logano, Jones, and Bell, they've bagged quite a few wins at Daytona, and not one of them was a Daytona 500. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I think uh, one of those races may be just in the cards. Uh, you know, there's so many drivers that have won the Daytona 500, and but the list is long of the guys who were so good on these larger super speedways, and they their name is not on that list. And it's just amazing the ones that are so incredibly good on restrictor plate tracks, and they just they they cannot break through. They cannot find victory lane. And and uh, yeah, it's just amazing to me. But the the twenty car uh, has got a lot of history uh, with some great drivers who have taken it. Sure. to victory lane and uh yeah tony i don't know the, the magic is there on so many racetracks but he was one of those that couldn't couldn't find victory lane in daytona but you know you're talking about de- getting dusted i you know i was sitting here laughing to myself about a time we had one of these uh they were debuting i think i told you about this before they were debuting one of these computer games uh in uh, at charlotte motor speedway and the the idea was to race against jeff gordon and they had a couple of those little cool steering wheels set up and a couple of computer screens. And here's my chance to race him, you know. And <laughs> I still laugh about this. But uh, we were just tooling along there, man. And I'm, here I am racing Jeff Gordon. And I look over, and he's done. And he's he was just sitting there waiting on me to finish. Poor Ben. <laughs> and, I, and I thought to myself, I thought, thanks a lot, J.G. Thanks a heck of a lot. You know, he was just busted out laughing. Was this the Abraham hey, days? Uh, or was I don't after? remember. No, I think it might have been a little bit after, but he okay. was. Uh, it was just funny. He had to be there, but it, it, he was probably finished maybe ten or twelve seconds ahead of me, 
And I, you know, everybody's kind of laughing a little bit, and I was laughing, and he was laughing. I'd have told him he had funny. the T-Rex cheat enabled. You know, it was just, he had to be there. I thought it was pretty funny myself, but he's like, he's like, I'm just waiting on you to finish. <laughs> I got to think, I've been in yeah. lobbies with, um, on iRacing, I've been in lobbies with Dale Jr., with A.J. Allmendinger, uh, and a couple others, uh, uh, Lando Norris, the Formula One driver. Yeah. Um, in, in different lobbies. Um, one time I spun out, I was in a practice session at, um, track in Connecticut, as it were, Lime Rock, Lime Rock Park, which the, uh, Arca Menard Series East uh, has raced at repeatedly. Um, I spun out and, uh, Lando had a chance to avoid me and just absolutely piled in the door. It was pretty funny. This is practice session, mm. so it didn't matter, but you know, yeah, these dudes are, uh, they're just as fast on a computer as they are in real life in a lot of cases. They are, and, but you know what? Here's the way I look at this kind of stuff. Just to have the chance to, to run against somebody like Jeff on anything. Sure. I mean, we, could be, we could be racing washing machines with wheels, and I would think this is the coolest that thing That would actually be a lot more fun. I would that would be. That. That would be fun. Yeah, I mean, like that or even like a shopping cart race. I think a shopping cart race would be fun. We've done those as uh, press events. It was before I started at Speedway. They did one with um, Eric Almarola, you know, for the uh, the Smithfield sponsorship. Um, Man, I'd love to race. I'd love to race shopping cart against a a cup driver because, I mean, I think – I think there's an even playing field there. You know, like if you get on the inside groove and you're going through the aisle, I I think, you know, you can – you can manipulate that a little bit. You can use them up, and and I, I would absolutely if I raced Eric Almirola in a shopping cart, I'm 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 giving him everything I got. Well, see, here's the problem with that for me. You know, if we, you know, if part of the track was like down the cookie aisle, yeah, you know, I would I would just lose. I would have to stop for cookies. What kind of cookies do you like, Ben? Oh, uh, you know, I'm I'm a chocolate chip man. Same here. You know? Same here. I, I, or a cake, or I mean, I'm trying really hard not to do that. But, oh, I, I get mean, you. Man. I love cheesecake. I probably yeah. have to stop and grab cheesecake. Maybe they I mean, would, You get me by would, the that area, and it'd be over. They would have to do the orange cones on the cookie aisle, and I'd have to bypass that because I'm telling you, I you know, the, I would just let somebody pass me. I would, I'd have to make an unscheduled pit stop. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, to do the cookies or cakes or any of that kind of stuff. I, we'd have to just stay out of the, you know, out of the like the cake aisle. Yeah, and the good I, thing is, you know, they put the cheesecake at the front typically with the bakery thing. So if I'm going through the aisles, I'm probably not going to have to, you know, encounter because if I encounter cheesecake, then that's going to be my focus. But um, you know, yeah. or like it could be. Oh Lord, we've talked enough about food already. I mean, I think everybody knows what we like, and the answer is most anything. Except in my case, I don't like. Uh, I don't like beans and I don't like uh, sweet potatoes. Oh yeah, we've been down there. I don't like black eyed peas, <laughs> and I know that I can feel the rage of the collective audience right now when I say I don't like black eyed peas. But it just doesn't do anything for me. So if we were going through the yeah. aisles, like I mean, I'd be throwing stuff on the at, at Alan Barola, whoever I'm racing, trying to get them to just distract them, you know? Because I mean, that's it's it's every man for himself and. Yeah. Um, as long as I don't have to pay for the broken boxes and stuff, I mean, I want to give myself a chance to win because I didn't. When I raced against Bubba Wallace, Eric Jones, Greg Alding, um, Andy Sice, and those guys in the go kart, um, the only chance I had to pass any of them was Andy Sice. And I, this was at GoPro Motorplex in Mooresville. Mm-hmm. And I got a great run on Andy Sice. You go, so the kart track in Mooresville is a, it is a championship caliber karting facility. Uh, it was founded by Justin Marks, and I think his partner was Michael McDowell in 2012. I was there the day it opened. So was Joey Logano. As a matter of fact, he was still driving the 20 car, and he had a Home Depot number 20 sticker in the back of his truck, which he probably doesn't have now. Um, mm. And it's a couple years later, I was in this race, these guys, and uh, it was a media versus drivers thing. There's like, you know, half a dozen media, half a dozen drivers. And so we're out there, and um, Bubba and those guys are, you know, uh, far ahead. So I'm running down Andy Sice, though. I think I mentioned this before, but I got a great run on him. So the first turn is kind of a sharp right-hander. You can take it flat, then there's S's. Well, I guess Andy lifted a little bit through the S's because I ate him up. I ran him down, man, and I'm like, all right. The back straightaway is a full-speed right-hander leading to the straight, and I'm going to get him. I got one shot here. He's going to hug the bottom, um, but he left a, He left an opening, Ben. He left an opening, mm. and I went for it, and he ran my butt into the straight into the grass. And, uh, I mean, use me up is not even, it doesn't do justice to the fact that like my choices were turn left and hook him and crash both of us 
or just hold it flat and not spin out, try not to spin out. So I didn't spin out, but I couldn't pass him. And he got, you know, obviously with me in the grass and him not in the grass, he was able to build a bit of a gap on me. Um, so I didn't get by him. But I was thinking the whole time, I was like, I'm going to pass the modified champion right here in a go-kart. And I guess he thought, oh, this speed sport rider's going to pass me in a go-kart. The hell he is. And he just reused me up. But hey, man, mm. it's racing. You know, he's he's entitled to do that. Um I was laughing as he did it. You know, it's, that's the fun of getting to interact with these guys. Yeah. We laughed about it after race. You know, I was like, you know, I, I was like, man, I almost got you. And he's like, yeah, you know, I had to do that. And I was like, I don't blame you. If I were you, I'd done the same thing. Um, because, you know, Ben, you know this just as well as I do. Say I pass Andy Sice or any of these dudes. Well, that next, that, that backstretch is really just one big opportunity for him to slipstream me and absolutely smash into me and run me out of the track in the next turn. So I wasn't going to be ahead of him long anyway. Mm-hmm. That was my that was my opportunity to pass a NASCAR champion, and I, I went for it. Um, so I can at least say that. Uh, yeah. Speaking of NASCAR champions, though, Ben, like Tony Stewart, like Joey Logano, like Matt Kenseth, um, those guys won their championships at the place that's the track of the week this week. It's not anywhere. I don't think Bobby Allison taught you how to race around there. Andy Sykes never ran me in the grass there, but it's a cool facility. And I remember watching the first race at this track, the first NASCAR National Series race at this place in the mid-90s, even then thinking how exciting it was that there's this new racetrack uh, in the southeast and it's Homestead Miami Speedway. Um, ben, if you recall the first Bush Series race there, I think it was 1995, the top two or three guys had a heck of a wreck on the last lap. Uh, super exciting race. It was on, it was on CBS, I believe. Um, but it's a fun racetrack. The, the only gripe I have really about it and we've talked about this, is that when it's on TV, they call it, they say they're racing in Miami, and Homestead Miami is in Homestead, and that is not Miami. Mm. Yeah, you have brought that up. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I just, yeah, I just, you know, I get it. Like, you can nitpick me, because I know Charlotte's not in Charlotte's in Concord. Atlanta's not in Atlanta. It's in Hampton. But, like, you know, they don't say they're right. I don't know. That one just, that one, that one rubs me the wrong way for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm weird. We- well, you know, uh, if I remember correctly, I believe, I believe it was the great Dale Jarrett who won that first I believe you're right. uh, Xfinity race there, and yeah. I believe I was there for that race. Were it was kind of cool. Yes, I was. That was awesome. Well, how did you like Miami, Ben? Did you actually go to Miami proper, or did you just go to the racetrack, which is not in Miami? Um, I believe we did go to Miami. That was my first trip to Miami uh, that year. You strike me as a Miami type of guy. I could see you like the <laughs> Hawaiian shirt unbuttoned at the top. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, sunglasses. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. you, man. Got a cold drink yeah, in your hand. That's yeah, you. Yeah, that's me. Uh, we stayed in Key West a lot of those years down okay. there. It's nice, uh, nice atmosphere. Um, you know, uh, got through it. I remember the fun part was we would get done at the track kind of early on Saturdays. And uh, we'd be heading back to Key West and kind of hanging out at the, at the uh, hotel. And it's just a nice area down in that area. Sure. I, I loved Hadn't been down there, quite honestly, in about uh, eight, eight or ten years now. But, yeah, we just always enjoyed going there. And we uh, the family would go along. And my wife and son would go along. Aaron would go when he was uh, 18 years old. Now he's building engines for Richard Childress and Austin Dillon. But, uh it's kind of cool. Yeah, and again, and, guys, uh, remember, this is not me. This is Ben's son, Aaron, who is his name is spelled oh, the yeah. same way. But his, yeah. Ben's son, Aaron, uh, as he said, builds engines for Richard Childress. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Homestead Miami, to throw another opinion out there, I think that should actually still be the championship race. Yeah. Because um, that place is I, just, it's, it's cool. It gave off when they when they started banking it in like 02, 03, I think it was 03. Um, it just added this whole new element. Uh, to it that gave you like late 80s Atlanta vibes um, it was the fact that they didn't race there all year so guys didn't have an inherent advantage like now if you're good in the spring at Phoenix I feel like you're gonna be good in the fall um, but at Homestead you didn't really know you had people who'd run the top and I mean and, and all these things are still true but like there was something about Homestead Miami being uh, the home of, of the final race the season that that I just really enjoyed um, yeah. And there's been some great races there, man. I'm gonna give you, a, I'll give you one real quick that I'll think about, and then I'm gonna turn it over to you. That's 2003, last race of the Winston Cup Series, um, last race of the 03 season. This kid named Kyle Busch withdrew from the race. He was gonna make his Cup debut, but apparently his car was so illegal that they were just like, nah, don't even, don't even try. And so they just withdrew his car, and he made his Cup debut in 04 instead of 03. Um, but uh, 
Bill Elliott, Ben, had just won the last race the, the year before that. He's leading on the last lap. My buddy Corey was at his place watching this race, and Corey had Bill Elliott in the race pool. We were playing NASCAR Thunder 2004 because that's what you did. And I go out in the living room, like, I'm going to catch the end of the race. He's like, all right, well, you know, he's just assuming Bill Elliott's going to win the race. And I yell in the last lap, oh, my God, Bill Elliott blew a tire. And he <laughs> straight up does not believe me. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, I was like, I'm serious, he blew a tire. And he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, all right, sure, whatever. Because um, so, Bill Elliott has this big advantage. They're talking about him winning. You know, he's, he's retiring from full-time driving. It's his last race as a full-time cup driver. He's going to win. He's going to go out winning back-to-back races. What an incredible accomplishment for a legendary driver. He comes off turn two, and he blows a tire, and Bobby Labonte passes him. And Corey walks out there and sees this, and just held his head up in his hands and couldn't believe it. So it cost him some money. Um, That was a wild finish. Um, Unpredictable racetrack, uh, unless you drove for Roush Fenway Racing, who uh, seemed to dominate there in the uh, early to mid-2000s. Um, those guys had that place figured out, but you know, Bill can't hate Homestead too much because in 2001, he won his first cup race in more than seven years there. And Ray Evernham's first win as a team owner, um, when he passed his teammate Casey Atwood and held off Michael Walsh to win the 2001 race at Homestead when it was still a, a flat racetrack. Um, so good and bad for Bill Elliott at Homestead, Miami. Um, but I think it's a cool racetrack. Um, there's been a lot of fun moments there through the years. And what's wild is it's already been around in NASCAR for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's just a couple that come to mind for me. One, the, the race in 2012, uh, November 18th, 2012, Jeff Gordon wins that one. That was a pretty cool race, you know, to watch uh, for me. And then also, of course, Martin Truex. Uh, won it in uh, November of 2017. I thought yep. that was also a good one for him. Well, it was Dale uh, Jr.'s last race. That was the yep. Truex Kyle Busch battle to the finish. Yep. That very, that race to emotional. me, Ben. We talked about our man Truex in the last episode a lot, but that race to me was the most impressive race Martin Truex Jr. has ever driven. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And just very emotional at the end and just, you know, a championship run and everything was just so cool about that one to me. I just thought, you know, I love Martin anyway. He's just a neat guy as we talked about in our last show and just, you know, it's just one of those great ones. And then of course, uh, looking back, uh, Greg Biffle, uh, in 04, 05, 06, I mean, had three, three in a row there and, uh, great runs for him. So, yeah, Homestead, Miami, just a great track, and and just we I used to love going there for one reason. That is, of course, the atmosphere was so great, and we, you can almost pretty well count on some great weather to finish the season off every time. I, I rarely remember yeah. rain events there, and beautiful weather, tropical weather, just a great atmosphere in Key West. Like I say, a lot of fun. Just I love going there. Is it not weird that? You know, when we think about Kyle Larson, we think of Kyle Larson in the same vein as Dale Jr. and Harry Gant, guys who like to run the, the top, the cushion, as they say in dirt racing. Um, love to run the top at racetracks, get so much speed off there. Um, as good as he's been at Homestead, Miami, he's still not won there in the Cup Series. That's so weird because you would think he absolutely would like like that place on fire. And he's come close before, but he still hasn't won at Homestead. That's so crazy. Um, and he won't have one this year, but... One of these days, he's going to win there because I, I mean, if you're matching current driver with current track, the ultimate pairing to me, the perfect pairing is Kyle Larson, Homestead, Miami. It plays to all of his strengths. Wouldn't you right. say? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think so many times I've said this on the show before, you know, and it's so elementary and cliche ish, I guess, but chemistry has so much to do with winning these races you can have the greatest car you can have the greatest driver you can have everything go your way and the smallest minute thing can go wrong in a race at the five to go ten to go a a tire equalize something go wrong the most minor thing and it takes a driver out of the contention to win and something just hasn't clicked with with Kyle on that racetrack yet, but it will something it'll all come together, but it it just hasn't come together for him yet. But believe me, it will. And this may be the year, uh, uh, you know, when, I mean, you'll, you'll see things come together for him all year long. The magic is there for him right now. Now it could, it could shift, 
but I mean, it's, it's coming together for him and, and we'll, we'll see how it goes for him. Absolutely. So talking in the lifetime and NASCAR podcast about Homestead, Miami, the success that some guys have had, the, the lack of success that other guys have had. Um, Ben, you brought up a great point though, uh, a, a bit ago about, um, you know, the, the fine line between success and failure in NASCAR. There are a few people who know that better than many others because they haven't just done NASCAR. They've also tried drag racing. And we've talked about guys doing NASCAR and Formula One, NASCAR and IndyCar, NASCAR and dirt racing. Today we're going to talk a little about NASCAR drivers and drag racing because there are a couple that I know of um, who have uh, delved into uh, professional NHRA drag racing and given it a whirl. Two of them which come to mind, Ben, for me, the late John Andretti. He ran a full top fuel season driving a Taco Bell-sponsored car in the mid-'90s. And the cool mm-hmm. thing about, about John Andretti was he uh, he did it all, man. He drove sports cars. He ran the Indy 500 and the 600 the same day, 1994. First one to ever do it. Uh, won Indy car races. Um, won Cup Series races. Uh, won sports car races. You know, he, but he also, he was like the type of guy, uh, they've said it about several people, we've said it about several people, Ben, that they'll race anything with an engine. And John Andretti was the epitome of that. And he proved it by just saying, you know what? I'm going to go drag racing now. I've done sports cars, IndyCar, NASCAR. Let's go drag racing for a year and run Top Fuel, which is the ballsiest type of drag racing. Um, yeah. But he's not the only one who's given a shot. Um, Kurt Busch, who has also driven the Cup Series, and sports cars and IndyCar, uh, Indy 500 Rookie of the Year in 2014, who's also run the 600 and uh, the Indy 500 on the same day. Kurt gave pro stock racing a shot, I believe in 2011. Um, so there have been a couple guys fairly recently who, uh, who gave drag racing a try, and it's such a different discipline than NASCAR. Like, you can translate a little bit, I think, of what you know in NASCAR to IndyCar, at least in the sense that like, all right, I'm changing gears. Some of the tracks may be the same. You drive them differently, but like there's a couple base things, right. That like, that might translate like Jimmy Johnson's learning a ton. It's like he's speaking a different language. Now that he's driving IndyCar as opposed to the cup series, but there's a couple things that might translate when you go from NASCAR to drag racing, nothing translates like it's Mm-mm. it's completely different you're not waiting for the green flag you're watching the tree you your reaction time is everything not because you're avoiding a crash but because if your reaction time is poor then you just flat out don't win um but it can't be too good or you'll red light and you'll automatically lose so people who i think it, and there's a reason that drag racers don't try nascar much and nascar drivers don't try drag racing much because it's just speaking a different language, you know. There's so right. so many things that that go into being a good cup driver, and that go into being a good drag racer, and very few of those things ever intersect. So it's always impressive when we see somebody give it a shot, like Kurt, uh, jump into it head first, like Andretti. Um, but uh, you've told me that they're not the only ones who gave drag racing a shot, right? No, absolutely not. And and you know, a lot of people may not realize realize this, but Seven-time champion Richard Petty actually drove a dragster drag racing in the mid-60s. And the way that came down was October 19, 1964, NASCAR banned the Hemi engine for the 65 season. And by doing so, Chrysler and all their drivers, namely David Pearson, Paul Goldsmith, Bobby Isaac, Jim Pascal, Leroy Yarborough, basically found themselves on the sidelines because they had no engine to run. The Hemi was a huge monster 426 engine. They could, they basically, they were bookends at that point. They had nowhere to use them. And uh, so they couldn't run them and they basically had nowhere to go. So a bunch of those guys had to do something else. And namely Richard Petty and Petty Enterprises went into doing drag racing. And they did that through about July 15th, 16th of 1965 until they went back to Bristol, what was then uh, Bristol International Raceway. And that's when they went back. I think it was the 34th of 55 races that year. So from January until July, they went, hit the drag strips. And which that's is so like wild. You, I know. And that is, that is I mean, like you were saying, 
when you're running a stock car, it's it's all about endurance and distance and four hours and five hours on these quarter mile and half mile and three quarter mile, a mile and a half racetracks. And then places like uh, Daytona, two and a half mile racetracks. And when you're doing drag racing, it's it's drag strips and two two five seconds eight seconds whatever and it's all over you got to come back and rebuild the engines every time out and that would be super depressing to me i just built this engine put my heart and soul into it you run it five seven eight seconds whatever that is and then you come back and rebuild it again it's like really seriously those I are the kind of heart- kids that like played with legos and just <laughs> yeah. tore them apart and like all right time to do it again like man i don't want to yeah. do that so that's where that, it was a make or break situation for the petty enterprise uh, corp, you know, entity because they simply had nowhere else to go until they were allowed to come back and uh, and go back to stock car racing uh, at you know by by say that summer. Mm-hmm. But uh, and but it was hard on the petties because they didn't know really what to do with themselves. They they had nothing to run for those what five six seven months and. Uh, so yeah, they actually drove uh, on the drag strips and uh, ran a little Plymouth, what they call Forty Three Junior. Yeah, I was and, about to say that's the only thing I knew about it was the number was Forty Three yeah. Junior. Yeah, and a very interesting little story there. But yeah, they came back and then they came back with a vengeance in '66 and uh, won a bunch of races. And of course, 1967, uh, they won 27 of 48 races, I believe, with 10 in a row. So that's they not said. Bad. Nah, that was a pretty good little little trick there. And they're like, okay, we're back, and I'll show you how strong we're going to be. And by the way, in 1967, they ran a single 1966 Plymouth one car to win 27 races, 10 in a row. They didn't have a fleet of cars. They only had one 1966 Plymouth. No backup car. No backup car. And if you can imagine... Uh, that car is now in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, but they one car to win that many races. It's phenomenal what they put together in 67, but in 65, it was a very tough year for the Petties. Ben, why, uh, speaking of, um, of, of, of cup drivers and drag racing, obviously, so we understand Petty did drag racing out of necessity almost. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't pay a ton, you know, to run races. Guys ran races all the time to put food on the table and to win trophies. Um, but, why did they ban? Do you remember why they banned the uh, the Hemi engine? Was it just because it was too powerful and too successful? Well, quite honestly, it was because it really wasn't available to the uh, the general public. In those days, you had to run at least five hundred and one engines uh, to make them available to the public. If you didn't have that many available, it wasn't. General, it wasn't there for the public to so have. It wasn't stock enough. Yeah, I got you. It wasn't stock. Enough, yeah. So you had to have at least 501 uh, to available to the public, and it wasn't that available. So it, it was basically a special type engine, and it wasn't it wasn't available to you, the general public. Do you think that uh, there's been this discussion recently about you know people who are open wheel racing fans look at NASCAR and think it's it's technologically backward. Um, I have been a long-time open-wheel racing fan. I love open-wheel racing. I grew up watching that and NASCAR. Um, so I always bristle a little bit when people talk about NASCAR being technologically backward. But it is interesting that they've had opportunities to um, move forward and be, you know, use some of the cutting-edge technology even that far back, and they chose not to do it, not to allow it. Um, but there's a reason that they did those things. And I, I get, you know, obviously in that case, it was, it wasn't stock enough for their tastes. Um, but NASCAR also, NASCAR doesn't allow the special engines for one team like IndyCar did for uh, team Penske at Indianapolis in 1994, um, for a reason. NASCAR mm-hmm. wants more parity than anything. They, they, they value parity, uh, over technological individual innovation in a lot of ways, not, to the sense that you can't innovate. I mean, ask Smokey Eunuch, ask Ray Evernham, Chad Knauss, uh, Bobby Allison. I mean, so many of those guys who figured it out. Gary Nelson's another one. Dale Inman um, certainly can and has been a possibility. But NASCAR wants to uh, position itself to have as leg as le- as 
All right, I'm going to try this again. <laughs> as level a playing field as possible. Uh, right. I don't know why it was so hard for me to say. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, you're, that's, you're, what, that's what they you're want. There. Yeah, so that, that's something that NASCAR's always wanted. And I, I think that's the reason we like it. You, you want to have, you know... Michael McDowell's car is probably not going to run that well in Formula One or IndyCar, but in NASCAR, he has an opportunity to win at Daytona 500. I think right, that's something right. that sets NASCAR apart in a positive way. Right, it does. And see, the idea from, from day one in 1949 was that if, if it's going to be a stock car, then everybody in the field has to have a stock car. Over years and years, though, this this has been tweaked and that's been tweaked and this is made a little better and that's a little better but you have to stay within the rules. Now the crew chiefs though, they want, they'll say that they're within the rules, but they want to push that rule as far as they can, obviously without breaking the rule. Now, what's the interpretation of breaking the rule? And that's where you have the, a lot of the dark and, and gloomy gray areas, if you will. And, but the, uh, but the overall general idea has been, okay, if it's set in the, in the driveway in 1949, the strictly stock car is what they started with, but you can make this minor adjustment and that minor adjustment. And from day one, that's where the quote rule dispute has started. For instance, let me give you this example. On the beach, Tim Flock took a car there and Bill France Sr. said, yes, you can put wooden roll bars with two by fours in this race car. Yes, you can. Okay, so he runs the race, and at the end of the race, he said, no, no, you can't run a wooden roll bar. Now, this is a true story. So Tim Flock gets upset and says, now, wait, and before the race, you said I could run wooden roll bars. Well, no, I changed my mind. Wait, so, so, he, changed, made him change, so he changed his mind, like, during the race. So beforehand, he's like, all right, it's okay. Yeah. And during the race, he's like, no, nah, it's not okay. Right. So the rule, and back in those days, the rule book wasn't a book. It was a sheet. It's probably about a half to three quarters of a sheet. This is, these are the rules. Well, over time, yeah, and over time, it became a book, and it's gotten thicker and thicker, and it's gotten more technologically advanced to the point where the guys that were on the pit crews uh, in all honesty, became uh, uh, quite a bit smarter than the guys in Detroit who had the engineering degrees because yeah. they were they had just they built them they've known how to do these things, the shade tree mechanics right. Sure. So, the the general point behind what I'm trying to say is these cars are stock cars and they they you didn't want to go this far out or that far out you want to try to stay within the rules. Uh, over time, though, these guys have, have been geniuses as far as how to make these cars uh, perform better. Let me give you one more example. If you go to the International Motorsports Hall of Fame in Alabama, in, in Alabama at Talladega, and you took a tape measure and you measured the front end of the number 11 uh, Junior Johnson and Associates, uh, Budweiser, Daryl Waltrip Chevrolet, and you measure the front end of Neil Bonnet's Junior Johnson and Associates Chevrolet, you're going to find that the front end of Neil Bonnet's car is six inches narrower than Daryl's, but to look at them side by side, you can't tell it. You Why do they do that? Because by having it narrower in the front, the downforce and that Neil's car would pick up made it so much faster. Okay. And so, so the point I'm trying to make is, the the two cars by looking at them side by side on the front row of any uh, of the leading the cars that that year at Talladega, you couldn't tell the difference. Hold on, man. We got to end this podcast. You tell me, Junior Johnson cheated up a car? No way. <laughs> no way. Forget yeah, it. it. Come on, man. Happen. Junior Johnson's like uh, he's like Ray Everham, Rex Stump. Those guys yeah. in that T Rex car. Listen, that was just yeah. that was as following the rules as so, could be. So that's when you started seeing side templates. Every, what I'm trying to say is yeah. every time something happened, then another rule was added to the rule book and sure. another template was added. And before you know it, you've got a hundred page rule book as opposed to one that had twelve pages or fourteen pages in the sixties. Every time 
that something was discovered, of course, then there's another rule. Smoky so, Eunuch says you're welcome. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying yeah. they they have continually found new ways to make the cars go faster. What you have today, though, is you've reached a point where the, we're reaching a point now. These cars that there's not too much more you can do to one of these cars, and all the secrets have seemingly been found. And we're reaching a point now. Now that this new car in 2022 is coming out, yeah, and the new bodies are there, and the new chassis are there, and the 550 horsepower, and I mean, we're reaching a point now where there's not too much more that can be found. Sure. So this is where we are, and this is technologically advanced now, to where I'm not sure you might find something else, but you got to look hard. Oh, Cliff Daniels says, hold my trophies right now. <laughs> Kyle Larson's crew chief. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, Ben. You make up a great point. The, the longer we've gone with NASCAR, the smaller and smaller the gray area has gotten. But you and mm-hmm. I both know there's always going to be some gray area. There's always something NASCAR is going to have to react to. Um, right. Guys Sorry are always going to figure out answer. some. Oh, you're good. Um, you know, and that's you, you, you bring up a lot of good points, and they're, they're, they're always true, is that, you know, they're still – it's getting tougher, but they're still going to figure stuff out. They're still going to cheat the system a little bit. Um, you know, I know people were whispering, how does Kyle Larson win a race by 10 seconds over his teammates? How is he that much better um, in the Coca-Cola 600? Sometimes guys just hit it. Plus, um, Kyle Larson's the best driver in NASCAR right now. I, mm-hmm. I challenge anybody to prove me wrong. Um, I don't know that – I'm not saying he's the best on every type of track. He's not the best every race. But I've said it for a long time, for years now. If there's anybody I'd pay to see a race in NASCAR, it's Kyle Larson. Um, the the Cup Series, the sanctioning body has um, a uh, they got a gem in him as a driver, and um, you know, I'm excited to see what he can accomplish as this year goes on. Uh, we said this last, you know, we said this before. I I want to see somebody win ten races, and I'd like to see Larson do it. Hasn't been done since two thousand seven. Jimmy Johnson's last guy to win double digit races. There was a time it wasn't that uncommon, particularly in the the seventies, eighties. Um, you know, Daryl Walter, Richard Petty, guys like that. You know, knocked it out. Dale Earnhardt did it. Rusty Wallace did it. Jeff Gordon's done it. Uh, Jimmy Johnson's done it. But I mean, since Jimmy in 07, it hasn't happened. I thought Kevin Harvick was going to do it last year. He couldn't do it. Kyle Larson's going to – he's going to have to go on a run for a little bit, but he's already on that run. So we'll see if he can do it. Um, Imagine imagine Kyle Larson as a driver, Ben, if if the rule book were smaller, what he could do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I'll say this too, Aaron. I think as we get into this new car in 2022 with the new wheels and the new – like I say, the new chassis, new body – Somebody will find something. It's not going to be a, a wide orbit, but I think somebody will find something. Yeah, and and they will they'll obviously keep it to themselves because you know it's funny we hear these guys in the media sometimes they say, well, what did you find and to make you run so fast? Well, obviously they're not going to tell you. Right. But you know that's that's a kind of redundant sort of question, but. They will find something, but I don't think you're going to see a wide range of, of finding whatever that is. I really don't think so, but they'll find little things, and those little things may add up over time because it happens each time. We've had you know, a swings of, say, for instance, back in 1981 when they went from the, the wider, uh, what was it, a 115-inch wheelbase to a 110 yeah. uh, wheelbase when they went to the smaller car. And they yeah. had to massage that. And they had, you know, you, back in those days, you saw the car, instead of flip from right to left, they were flipping from left to right when the wind got under them at Daytona and things like that. So they'll find things. But it'll, it'll be over time, and they'll keep it really close to the best, and, and we'll see where we go with them. And, and they'll have to experiment with them, and they'll have to see where it goes. But, uh, yeah, so we'll see how they perform, and they'll make changes. NASCAR will make changes. Drivers will will talk about changes and and see how they perform. But it's a brand-new era, so we'll see where we go. That is the absolute truth. So, Ben, I think we've crossed the finish line on Episode 20. Um, Mm -hmm. It has been a blast, as always, chatting up with you. Can't wait to do it again soon. 
Um, for you guys listening, we're, we're going to roll back with episode 21 faster than Bill Elliott clocked in and qualifying at Talladega in the mid-80s. Um, but in the meantime, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, hit us up on Twitter at NPPMag at uh, Pole Position Magazine because we are part of the Out of the Groove podcast network um, affiliated with NASCAR Pole Position and AE Engine. Um, Got to give a shout out to our boy Eric again for uh, subbing for me while I was uh, busy with the Coca-Cola 600. Um, but yeah, can't wait to come back. Roll on to episode 21. Uh, there's a lot of cool stories coming up that we're going to talk about with the number 21 car, uh, including somebody uh, who may be very familiar to you from this podcast who has sat in the number 21 cup car before. But uh, we'll catch up with that in the next episode. In the meantime, for my buddy Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. I want to thank you again so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.